Inside ADHD is ADHD Family's official podcast that provides parents with current research about ADHD and strategies for helping their children. ADHDfamilies.ca is a resource website for parents of children who have ADHD. All of the resources have been evaluated by experts in the field of ADHD, so parents can feel confident that they are receiving trustworthy information. For more information, visit ADHDfamilies.ca, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or your favorite podcast player. If you have a specific ADHD topic that you would like to hear about on our podcast, please send your suggestions to ADHDfamilies at canlearnsociety.ca. I'm a registered psychologist at the Canlearn Society in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. I'm also a team member of ADHDfamilies.ca. And I'm so excited because this is our um, first podcast in a few months. We've taken a bit of a break. And it's also our very first podcast where I was able to interview somebody. Um, So today on our podcast... I interviewed Dr. Jerry Giesbrecht from the Oworko Center here in Calgary, working on some really um, interesting research that we'll get to in a minute. Um, and as part of this, this is kind of our um, beginning of doing more of these interview-style podcasts. In the fall, we would like to continue on by doing more of these podcasts where we interview local researchers and clinicians about um research and programs in the Calgary area related to ADHD, learning disabilities, child development, parenting, all sorts of things that um, the ADHD family's audience may be interested in. So please keep keep us in mind in the fall and we'll definitely have some more content for you guys um, to listen to. So I want to talk a bit about um, Uh, research opportunities for children, so for families to be involved in over the summer. So um, if you're parents of children who are between the ages of 8 and 12, either with ADHD or without ADHD, you might be interested in participating in the University of Calgary's Strengths in ADHD lab. They've got some projects going on over the summer. They're looking specifically for children either with or without a diagnosis of ADHD between the ages of 8 to 12 to participate in a study exploring social skills, thinking, and emotions. Participants um, involved, uh, they're involved in a three-hour visit to the lab, they'll get a parking pass provided, and then you'll receive a gift card for participation. So if you are interested, you want to get in contact with the Strengths in ADHD Lab. Their phone number is 403-210-6726. Or you can email email them at ADHDkids at ucalgary.ca. So that's for the Strengths in ADHD Lab if you're interested in finding more information to have your child participate. Uh, Before we introduce Dr. Jerry Giesbrecht and I uh, play the interview for you, I wanted to also provide some information about um, the Oworko Center and what it is they actually do. Uh, So the Oworko Center is a multidisciplinary research center within the Alberta Children's Hospital Research Institute, and it really focuses on neurodevelopment and neurodevelopmental disorders, of which ADHD falls into that category. Um, the Oworko Center researchers come from departments and faculties across the University of Calgary, so they work in collaboration. And these include uh, researchers who come from the Cummings School of Medicine, Psychology, Nursing, Social Work, Education. And they're also joined with clinical scientists from Alberta Health Services. Uh, the Oberco Center was launched in the fall of 2015, so they're still fairly new, but they're doing a lot of great research. They have over 10,000 square foot laboratory space, and this was definitely um, designed to enable greater collaboration and innovation for researchers focused on brain development and neurodevelopmental disorders such as autism and ADHD. 
and the construction of the lab was made possible uh, thanks in, to a generous gift from Calgary philanthropists Stan and Marge Owerko. So that's a bit about the Owerko Centre. I want to introduce um, Dr. Giesbrecht before I play the interview. Um, he is an assistant professor in the Department of Pediatrics in the Cummings School of Medicine at U University of Calgary. He's also an assistant professor in the Department of Community Health Sciences in the Cummings School of Medicine at the U of C, and also an adjunct professor at, in the Department of Psychology at U of C, and a faculty affiliate at, for the Institute for Interdisciplinary Salivary Bioscience Research at the University of California, Irvine. He's also a registered psychologist here in Alberta with the, uh, through the College of Alberta Psychologists. At his postdoctoral fellow training in the Department of Pediatrics and the Faculty of Medicine here in Calgary at U of C. Uh, he received a PhD in psychology from the University of Victoria in Victoria, BC, and a master's in psychology at Trinity Western University, and then a BA at Trinity Western as well. In North America, approximately one quarter to one third of all pregnant women experience some form of psychological stress during pregnancy. Although some forms of mild stress may actually be beneficial, exposure to high levels or persistent stress during gestation significantly increases the risk for the emergence of emotional, behavioral, and cognitive disorders in children. So the Developmental Psychobiology Laboratory, where Dr. Jerry Giesbrick works, seeks to discover how stress uh, during gestation and in the early years becomes biologically embedded in children's development. The lab's objectives are to understand the risk and the resilience factors that exacerbate or mitigate the effects of stress on children's development. The research in the lab clusters around two major themes. One, understanding the biological mechanisms that project the effects of early experience onto future development. And two, understanding the biological, psychological, and social factors that interrupt or transform the negative effects of stress. So by understanding how stress gets under the skin, essentially, of children, and what modifiable factors may prevent or ameliorate these effects, the overall aim of the Developmental Psychobiology Lab is to improve the health and developmental outcomes of children exposed to early life adversity. And so I was very excited to uh, interview Dr. Giesbrecht this morning. And now what I'll do is I'll send you to that interview and I'll catch you on the flip side. Enjoy the interview. Dr. Jerry Giesberg from the Owerko Center. He's going to tell us a little bit about that and then we'll talk a little bit more specifically about his research. So welcome Jerry. Thank you. Thank you so much for agreeing to do our interview with us. This is our first one where we're doing an interview and when it's we're actually, pleasure. yeah, and actually when we're looking at research and locally done research, so that's awesome. So Jerry, tell us a little bit about Owerko. So the Orco Center is um, a physical space um, where uh, there's a collection of researchers here who work together to uh, advance the field of research in um, developmental psychopathology, neurodevelopmental disorders, um, you know, autism, ADHD are clearly within the scope of the things that we do. We also work on other kinds of kid-related developmental issues. Um, so it's a physical space where some of us are actually doing this work. And then in, in, it's also a virtual space where we have sort of these connections with uh, researchers all across the university campus. So you know, in, ver in, in different faculties from medicine to arts to social work. So it's a very, it's a diverse group of people that are working together 
to try to address questions about neurodevelopment and mental health in young kids. That's awesome. And I think it's good that researchers from different fields are collaborating, right? Because they're not always using the same approaches or language or perspectives. So that's awesome. Many of the easy questions have already been addressed. (laughs) Now now we're getting into more difficult questions that often require uh, expertise from several disciplines to be able to address them. Yeah, that's awesome. So tell us a bit about the research you've been doing at Awerco. Kind of what got you interested in that research? Yeah, so my research really focuses on stress and how stress uh, shapes developmental trajectories for young children. So we've known for a long time that when kids experience stress, this typically is not good for the development. And there's lots of reasons why this is the case, but maybe just to summarize it into sort of one idea, the big problem with stress is that it takes energy away from development, both physical and psychological slash emotional energy away from development, and sort of funnels that energy toward sort of survival and vigilance and sort of making sure that I'm going to be okay right now. Does this on biological, it does this on cognitive levels. So uh, that's kind of the big problem with stress. Of course, stress is actually good. Our stress responses are good, right? <laughs> they, they help us to survive difficult situations and all of us experience stress in one way or another pretty much every day. And when we experience a stress that's sort of manageable, what we do is we we mount this temporary stress response that helps us to deal with whatever is in front of us and then to quickly shut it down and sort of bring us back to normal. So when that kind of response is happening where there's there's a stressor, there's a stress response, we deal with it, it shuts back down, we can return to our normal activities of growth and development. When these things happen too severely, so the stressors are so big that we really cannot handle them, or they happen so often that the stress response system really doesn't have a chance to properly shut down. This is when we get into really negative long-term effects of stress, uh, sometimes referred to as toxic stress. Right. So a lot of that that you're doing is for um, around the stress response and how it affects developmental outcomes. Yeah. Yeah. So there's been a lot of work looking at stress in, that young kids experience and how this affects their development. My focus really has been on the stress that comes before baby is born. Mm-hmm. So the the stress that mom experiences before she's pregnant, right. the stress that mom experiences during her pregnancy, and how those experiences of stress that mom has uh, might be passed on to her baby and how they affect the development of, of the baby for good or not good. Uh, just one quick note, you know, there's, there's obviously effects of fathers as well mm-hmm. that can be passed on. We'll talk a little bit more about fathers yeah. later on, but that, that's the exposures in the fathers or the experiences that fathers have and how those might be passed on are, have really not been a focus of my research program or for anybody's research yeah. program, really. Uh, it's, it's a hugely neglected area of research. Um, but I think there's probably some good reasons for it. One, one of them is that the mom is sort of the incubator. (laughs) And so there's some very direct connections that mom has with the development of the fetus. And that's really why we focus on the moms, but we shouldn't neglect the fathers. No, and that's something we'll talk about in a little bit. Yeah. So a bit of this research, I know when I was reading your paper, we talked, they talked, you talked about um, social buffering. So can you sort of start getting into this idea of how that's related to stress response and how that can be helpful. Yeah, so maybe I'll just back up and say a little bit about what the stress response actually is. So the the stress response is really a whole body uh, response to whatever is in front of us. So 
there's kind of some major components. One of them is the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, which is uh, which produces cortisol, which is sort of mm-hmm. the, the most famous yes. <laughs> stress hormone. It certainly isn't the only one, but it's the one that my research program focuses on. And, and one of the reasons that we focus on cortisol is because it's the end product. It has direct effects on many of the developmental processes that we're interested in. Mm-hmm. And by the way, cortisol is really important for proper development. Right. So it shouldn't get a bad rap yeah. just because it's cortisol. Yeah, it's not <laughs> it's all bad. To say it's not all bad, that's <laughs> right. Um, but um, the, the, the main product of the HPA axis, that, which is the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, is cortisol. And it has a very important role in terms of mobilizing energy. So when we face a stressor, the cortisol helps us to sort of gather the energy that we need. And it also has effects on our brain to shift our focus toward things that are potentially threatening. Um, and it changes the way that we process uh, emotion, process our emotions and what we pay attention to in, in the environment. So there's kind of like this elevated threat scanning. So you can see how all of these things are really important for uh, facing a potential threat that we experience. One really key part of this is that cortisol, when it gets into our circulation and helps us to start do these things like mobilize energy stores and do its work, it feeds back to the brain and starts to shut down the stress response immediately. But with repeated exposure to stress, there can be sort of a, 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 a decrease in the feedback and what happens then is that the stress response kind of carries on. So we've got these um, uh, effects of cortisol both on the periphery, sort of our muscles and the energy stores that are available, and we've got effects of cortisol and other products of the HP axis on the brain, which helps us to shift our focus and our thinking. And in the brain, one of the key areas is the prefrontal cortex. So that's sort of like you know your forehead, right? What's underneath your forehead? And this is the part of our brain that makes us uniquely human. It's the part of the brain that allows us to do higher order thinking. It allows us to make, you know, do, do high level decision making to regulate our emotions and be flexible. Um, and it also helps us to, to decide if something is stressful or not. And cortisol affects this area of our brain. It essentially um, knocks us down into what I would call a a survival mode kind of thinking, Mm -hmm. where you make the simplest decisions possible. And if you've ever sort of been in a situation where you sort of feel like a deer in the headlights, you know, something caught you by surprise, and you sort of just you know, what comes out of your mouth is, is the simplest thing that you could have ever imagined. That's kind of like what uh, the effects of stress are in the prefrontal cortex. It sort of takes away uh, much of the sort of higher order uh, and more complex thinking and shifts our focus to threat within the environment and simple actions that can be executed immediately. Yes. <laughs> So, you know, maybe later on we'll get into talking a little bit about how stress affects parents um, and their parenting ability. And, and, and this is, you know, what I've just talked about is really a key part of that. When, when you're sort of going in the second round with that kid who won't go to sleep and is really crying, you know, and you're start, your, your own sort of sense of I don't know what to do is kind of growing and mm. your stress is, is increasing. Our ability to make good decisions and uh, think clearly sort of decreases. There's one other component to the stress response which is the autonomic nervous system. And this, you know, this is the adrenaline component, the, yeah. the fight or flight. Um, and it really primes the body to act in a big way. So we get increases in heart rate and increases in blood pressure. Um, but these systems also, or this response also very much shuts down 
growth and higher order function and really puts us into survival mode. So all of these pieces work together at the yeah. same time. And what they help us to do is to shift into a mode where it becomes uh, possible to overcome whatever or meet the challenge or whatever is in our environment. <laughs> and uh, when we do that successfully and the stress response shuts down, that's, that's sort of the way that the system is designed to work. When it doesn't shut down yes. or when we ha experience this too often, that's when we really see negative developmental effects happening. And it's interesting that you mentioned the prefrontal cortex because a lot of our listeners who have ADHD themselves or children who have ADHD already probably have listened to a lot of episodes where I've talked about that and saying that it's already um, a problem because they have troubles with organizing, time management, judgment, impulsivity, those things. And then when you add stress onto it, it's like a double dose of that I, I, impairment. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think that's a really great way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah. So that's definitely relevant to our audience. Um, I wanted to ask, because I think some of our listeners might be interested in how you guys actually measure cortisol in these studies. Yeah, so um, <laughs> it used to be the case that you had to draw blood right. to do this. Um, but in the last about 20 years, the, the science in salivary analytes, so like the stuff that's in your saliva, right. has become so good that now we can very, very accurately assess the bioactive component of cortisol mm -hmm. in saliva. And it's as simple as spitting in a little tube. Nice. Uh, or sometimes we, with kids, especially, who have difficulty spitting into tubes, we use uh, little synthetic swabs and that they can just insert into their mouth and sort of dab up the saliva. Yeah. We really don't need a lot. Um, you know, it's about 50 microliters, which is really a very, very small amount. And we can do quite a bit. We can look at quite a few different things in the saliva with, with a small amount. That's awesome. <laughs> I thought people would be interested in that, using spit. <laughs> yeah. um, I know you and I had talked about um, this acronym ACEs, and I think it's important for our parents to kind of know if they haven't heard about it, because it's sort of big in research right now. Can you describe... Um, a little bit about what that research about and how it relates to your research. So ACEs, for everyone that's listening, is Adverse Childhood Experiences. Um, so Jerry, can you just sort of describe how that's related? Yeah. Or, and what's, what's the purpose of all that research? Yeah, what's so maybe, the importance of it? <laughs> I'll take you back to sort of the, the start of this, yeah. this research on ACEs. You know, really, uh, some of these concepts have been around for a very long time, but where we really sort of started to pay attention to the idea of ACEs is from a study in California that was done um, about 20 years ago, I believe, where they, they looked at uh, the population of uh, a, a large population. I think the sample size was something around 9,000 or a large group of people. And first of all, they found out that ACEs are surprisingly common. You know, someplace between 35 and 45% of the population has experienced at least one adverse childhood experience. And these experiences are related to health outcomes, things like obesity, cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, and so on. So this, it was the observation of these health outcomes that actually made the researchers go back and try to figure out what's going on. And what they landed on is this idea of ACEs. Okay, so what are the ACEs? So adverse childhood experiences are really anything that, that the child experiences as highly negative. So when we measure these things in our samples, we typically focus on three specific aspects. One would be abuse, so this would be like sexual, emotional, or physical abuse. The other one, uh, the second one would be neglect. And the third one is family dysfunction. So within the family dysfunction area, what we're looking at is things like, do you have an alcoholic parent? Do you have a parent who uh, uh, was mentally ill? Do you have a parent who was incarcerated? Uh, so it's those, th that's kind of the realm of the ACEs. These are, 
These are all things that we would agree are um, very difficult experiences for a young child to go through. Important to note, however, that although universally these are challenging, difficult experiences for people to have, people and children included respond to them in very different ways. So some, some kids will essentially become pretty much completely derailed by these experiences and other kids show a great deal of resilience in the sense that they, they overcome or they do better than expected given the difficult circumstances mm -hmm. that they're experiencing. So uh, the question of why do some kids get derailed and other kids seem to thrive in these circumstances is a very important and relevant question that you know, I think we have some ideas about that, but we're still really not sure what what's going on there. Yeah, and so this is important too because eventually, hopefully, some of these outcomes will then inform preventative interventions and things that we can do earlier on. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's talk a bit about your research. So, when I read your paper, there was this idea of the it's 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 a bit of a mouthful, but intergenerational transmission of stress, which I thought was very interesting. Um, for everyone listening, I was able to come to the Orco, uh conference yesterday and sort of heard you talking about this. And, you know, I mentioned, I noticed, I noticed you mentioned up front that it sounds very negative and mm -hmm. deterministic. Yes. Yeah. Um, but I think, it, and if everyone holds on, we have some positive conclusions at the end here, but maybe talk a little bit about that idea of the intergenerational transmission of stress and where your research is looking into that. Yeah. So uh, unfortunately, this this is a, a mostly a bad news idea, right? right. But um, it's important to talk about it because uh, there's things that we can do about it. So uh, intergenerational transmission of stress really refers to the idea that the experiences that parents have get passed on, sort of into and get incorporated into the development of their children, become part of their flesh and blood. And in so doing, they sort of re recapitulate or they re sort of experience the stressors in the children, even though the children were not actually ever ex directly exposed to the stressors. So you can, you can think about this in the sort of the simplest kind of way would be uh, parents who experience great poverty, their children are very much more likely to experience great poverty than other children. So, you know, you can explain that in a lot of different ways mm -hmm. um, that, don't, that don't really capitalize on the key idea that I want to talk about, which right. is the biological embedding of experience into development. Yeah. So the key idea here is that when we experience something, so if I'm a child and I experience an adverse childhood experience, there is a very good chance that those experiences will actually change my biology. And there's, there's very good reasons for this that have to do with our ability to adapt to our environments. So when I adapt to a negative, difficult environment, it changes my biology in some ways that can be passed on to, to, the, to my children. So our focus has really been on moms and the ways that her experiences of ACEs as a child change the stress biology during pregnancy. Now, the reality is that those experiences of ACEs that mom had as a child, they, they change her biology sort of more permanently. It's not just during pregnancy that they change the biology, but they, the point is they change the biology. Then when mom is pregnant, that change in biology can actually change the biology of the child. And then the biology of the child then changes the way that the child develops. So then what we, you know, we come full circle back to this idea of intergenerational transmission. So you, you have this behavioral exposure, so abuse or neglect that mom experienced when she was a child, changes her biology, that biology gets passed on to her kid, 
And then you see negative behavioral effects in the child that, that mimic the negative behavioral effects that people have when they actually experience abuse or neglect. So um, it's, it, it's like the child, the offspring, actually doesn't need to experience the, uh, the abuse or neglect to bear the negative behavioral and biological consequences. Now, again, that sounds a little over the top and very mm-hmm. deterministic and, um, you know, kind of, it, it just even as I'm talking about it, it sort of like drains yes. all my hope for humanity. Right. <laughs> um, the, the, the reality that this happens, we, we shouldn't ignore that reality, even though it's, it's um, sort of gives us this feeling of hopelessness. Right. But, but we, what we should focus really on is what we can do. Yeah. How do we how do we help families have better relationships so that kids don't experience aces in the first place? Right. And then in circumstances where it happens anyway, right. What can we do later on to prevent or recalibrate uh, biological function mm-hmm. so that these negative consequences of those experiences don't get passed on from generation to generation? And you know, to me, that's the very hopeful part of the research yeah. that I've been doing is is that we we have ideas about how this can happen. So we have known for a long time that the HPA axis is very, very sensitive to social experience. Mm-hmm. So in really young babies, the relationship that those babies have with their parents are really key yeah. to regulating the HPA axis. So if parent and baby have a strong, um, sensitive relationship where, you know, there's kind of this serve and return Mm -hmm. relationship where, you know, the infant offers something up like a coo and the parent coos back, you know, with with the right kind of timing and the right kind of tone and and all of that. the, the child begins to develop a very sort of secure sense of that parent and a, and a confidence in the relationship that helps to buffer HP axis responses or yeah. stress responses. So when babies are born, you know, uh, in the first, let's say, two or three months mm-hmm. of their life, if you take off their diaper, they'll have a stress response. Right. Basically anything will give them a yeah. stress response. And this is, this is kind of like, this is normal. This is what babies yeah. do. But as they get older and that relationship with the parent begins to really get embedded in the response of the HP axis, what you see is that baby will cry and fuss and behaviorally tell you, I am unhappy, I am distressed, can you please do something about this difficult situation, but there's no cortisol response. Yeah. Oh. Or the cortisol response is very much muted. Hmm. It, it may still be there, but it's very much muted. That's what you would see when things are going well between baby and parents, and the, and the baby feels like there's a secure relationship. When things aren't going well, baby still needs to mount this cortisol response because Mm -hmm. there is this sense that I'm not sure that the people around me are going to be able to do what it takes to deal with whatever this difficult thing is. So I should uh, make sure I prepare my body for these difficult situations because I'm just not sure that it's going to get taken care of. But this is a very costly response. Energetically, it's costly. Mm -hmm. It derails development we we do it because it's important for survival right but it derails development and it begins to erode developmental potential and so um and and it it increases the likelihood that kids will develop developmental problems psychopathology right um, things like that so tell us then about how you looked at fathers specifically, spouses, and how they were able to sort of 
be a buffer, I guess, and we'll talk a bit about what we mean by buffer in in these responses. Yeah. Because that's fascinating. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, we're capitalizing on this observation that parents buffer effects of uh, a stress on the HP axis in, in infants. And in fact, this also happens in adults. So when we have um, a relationship with another person who we trust, care about, it reduces not only our psychological experience of stress, in other words, we, we, we think things are less stressful when we've mm-hmm. got someone who really cares about us and who we really trust, who is sort of with us yes. in an experience. And secondly, it reduces the uh, biological response that we have to those difficult stressors. So if you can imagine being in a car accident or something like that, which um, you know is, could be very stressful, uh, yes, we're going to feel stressed. We're yeah. going to feel, we're going to probably have a whole body response to what's going on. But if we have a supportive partner or somebody to walk through us, mm-hmm. w- w- to walk with us through this difficult situation, we're probably going to experience less stress and less biological response to stress. So our idea was to think about this in the context of pregnancy. And could this be a mechanism by which we could actually reduce the negative effects of stress that, that could potentially be passed on to baby um, by, um, by you know, partner support? So right. We had the sample of individuals that we were looking, working with or researching was a community sample here in Calgary. And you know, tip, who we get in, in our research is couples, they're, they're making babies, right? mm-hmm. mom is pregnant. So that's, that's our, kind of our, our, our inclusion criterion. So what we got was moms and fathers, mm-hmm. moms and dads, so the dads of the babies, um, who are part of the study. So we looked specifically at partner support here. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it's, I think this research is potentially applicable to other groups as well. But mm-hmm. what we did then is we looked at how mom feels about or perceives the support that she's getting from her partner. So we did two pieces to this. First of all, we started by just looking at would the perception of support that mom receives from her partner actually reduce the cortisol response to stress, her, her own Hers, cortisol yeah. response to stress during pregnancy. Yeah. And the kinds of things that we're looking at is, you know, how satisfied are you with, with the kind of the practical support or the informational support, emotional support that you receive from your partner? Right. Is it the right amount? Is it too much? Does it ever make you feel belittled or mm, demeaned? Mm. Um, Would this be stuff like emptying the dishwasher? So it could be. So it <laughs> Mowing could be, the lawn? Right? Um, it, it, it's, it's, in, it's individual to yeah. each person, right? So part of it would be if, if emptying the dishwasher was an important thing to someone. Right. Having a partner do that for you would, would be yeah. a pretty s- strong indication of... I'm, I'm here for you, I'm, yeah. I'm going to help you, right? And that's based on your perception. That's based on your perception, okay. yeah. So, I mean, this is a really great point. If, if you know, if you're uh, a partner who says, okay, I'm going to commit myself to, to the dishwasher, mm-hmm. you know, this is how I'm going to show support, but that is actually not important right. for the partner, <laughs> then it's, it, it might not work in the way that, that you want it yeah, to. Yeah, right? it will make a dent. <laughs> so... Um, so then we're, we're looking at the perceptions that mom has about how well does my partner do in terms of being able to meet my needs for support. Mm. And what we found is this really clear result, which was that if mom said, you know what, my partner is not quite there in terms of being able to meet my needs for support, right? then you see this very normal stress response where mm-hmm. cortisol increases following a stressful experience. But if mom had what I would refer to as adequate or better support from her partner, then what you see is a very 
sort of flat cortisol response. <laughs> it's exactly what we see wow. in babies who have secure sort of yeah. sensitive relationships with their parents, yeah. which is that if when that relationship is there, the even though the baby might be distressed behaviorally, you don't see the physiological response. Right. So here too with moms, even though they're reporting psychological experiences, stress and distress, their cortisol isn't increasing. (laughs) So this was kind of the indication to us that, hey, this this is a potential mechanism by which fathers really can indirectly affect the development of their baby. Yeah. So we actually followed up with it. Then. Yeah. And what we did is we measured uh, mom's experiences of ACEs when she was a child. And we looked at how this would change the biology of her stress response. Mm-hmm. And then we looked at the biological stress response in the babies as well. And in all of this, what we were keeping in mind is would the partner support buffer this effect? Would it essentially reduce the cascade from mom's ACEs to her biology to baby's biology? And this, in fact, is exactly what we found. Wow. So when, when when mom said, my partner is good enough at providing support (laughs) or better than that, this cascade did not happen. In other words, this, this intergenerational transmission of stress was blocked wow. by the support that the partner was providing. And it's important to note that we found this effect both for prenatal support, mm. so the support that that uh, partner is giving during gestation or right. pregnancy, and also the postnatal yeah. component of that. So the circumstances under which we, we actually do see this biological transmission of stress across the generations is when mom does not feel like she has the support that she needs. Right. So what's happening under these circumstances is that she's producing greater levels of cortisol, hmm. these get passed on to the fetus, and then it shapes the way that the fetus is going to respond to stress when it's a baby. Yeah. So And that's when we measure the stress responses is, is uh, in the babies, and we can detect that signal in the babies. It's so, uh, I love it. <laughs> it's just so cool to see um, support indirectly affecting baby. The support that mom receives positively affects baby. And yeah. that's so neat. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just love it. And I love how in your, your paper that I was reading, talked about this other aspect, and maybe you can talk a bit about it, um, uh, this this term epigenetic recalibration. So you might want to just say, you know, what is epigenetics for people who are listening, but wh- how does this idea of being like recalibrated um, through social support, how does that occur? It's, it's an interesting idea. I'll let you describe it yeah. to our audience. So epigenetics are really just mean on top of genetics. So they mm-hmm. are effects that change the way that our genes function, but they don't actually change the genes. So our biology changes in experience-dependent ways. So that includes the brain, it includes our cells, it includes the function of biological systems. So, you know, we've been talking about the HPA axis, and which is kind of, you know, one of the main stress response systems. And experience changes the way that that system operates so um, and and so when we have repeated experiences our bodies actually change to sort of optimize or to adapt to that environment so this can this can be both positive and mm-hmm. it can be negative right I love it um, so as far as what you found in your research, um, I mean, it says to me that fathers, spouses, partners are quite important in in sort of influencing positive development biologically, um, even when babies aren't born yet. So I think that's something 
and maybe a lot of dads out there would be interested to hear that there is a role that they can play there is um, and it's important Um, and it's not just sort of you know for some people yeah emptying the dishwasher may not be important but there might be other ways that help mum to say I have support right my perception is I have support here I feel safe I feel taken care of I have someone to go to when I need help that kind of thing Um, To me, it feels like it empowers dads, fathers, partners, spouses to say, yeah, I actually do have a role to play. What kind of suggestions would you say to to partners as far as, you know, anyone who might be in that situation or if there's parents out there who are planning to be pregnant at some point, like what can be like encouraging to them from all of this? Yeah, this is uh, the positive part. Absolutely, <laughs> and, and I think it is the empowering part. Yeah, you know, as a as a father myself, I when um, my wife was pregnant with our first baby, I remember having thoughts about okay, so like now what? You know, basically yeah. I'm waiting around yeah. until the baby arrives, and then yeah, then I can do all kinds of things. I can I can help, but right. what do I do now? And and I'm just not really clear about that. I think the research that we've been doing does point to a very clear and substantial role. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that dads are very much interested in the development of their babies and giving their children the best opportunities. Yeah. And those, uh, you know, our role as dads can clearly start before baby is born. And it it in you know we're we're not the ones who are gestating the baby yeah. and you know so mom clearly has a very prominent role here yes <laughs> um, but the the research that we're doing is really showing that that supportive role has a direct biological effect or perhaps the better way to put it is an indirect yeah. biological effect but it's a it's a clear substantial biological effect mm-hmm. on the baby. So, you know, I think there's um, the, the, this message about um, how dads can uh, influence the health of their babies through the, their relationship with their partners, I think is, is a really key message. Yeah. By the way, it's one that fits very well with research that you know, on on divorce. Mm-hmm. And when, when families, uh, when couples decide to not be together anymore, one of the most important indicators or, or uh, uh, sort of protective components that uh, couples can do to shield their kids from the negative consequences of divorce yeah. is to make sure that they keep their relationship as good as possible. Right. So when when that divorce goes poorly, when there's acrimony and mm-hmm. really a lot of bitterness in the couple, the kids tend to suffer the consequences of that much, much more than when mom and dad decide, all right, you know, at least for the sake of our children, we're right. going to make sure that this goes as well as possible in terms of you know, uh, parting ways with, um, you know, in, in the most uh, sort of kind way that, that's possible under right. the circumstances, right? Yeah. So, you know, the, the support of the, of the partner fits very well with what we already know mm-hmm. about the way that kids respond to stress. Yeah, and I think it also just reminds partners to... Um, uh, take care of themselves. I talk a lot about this with parents and child relationships. We have to take care of ourselves so that we have the energy, um, the patience to um, deal with kids, especially if, you know, for people who are listening who might have children who have ADHD or um, other developmental disorders. There's a lot of patience that's required, and so if we're not taking care of ourselves, we can more easily be frustrated 
you know, quick to anger and that kind of thing. But then it reminds me, too, to say, as a partner, I also need to take care of myself, whatever that looks like, so I can be a good partner, so that we can sort of reap the indirect effects of positivity going down to the child. Um, And what's cool about this is I think we've sort of known this on a social, psychological level, but what you're saying is there's an there's also a biological piece to it that all three in some sense are together and that biology is changed by these relationships and interactions and so Absolutely. by saying yeah. i'm going to take care of myself whatever that might be it might be you know saying i'm going to exercise more i'm going to eat healthier i'm going to work on better sleep or whatever it is to be um the best I can be as a partner and a father or a mother. Um, so for me, it's interesting that we can make similar connections with spousal relationships or partner relationships as as I have in the past with parent and child relationships. It's the same argument and you're giving us a lot of, um, you're giving us the biological piece of it, which is really cool. Yeah. Um, that was awesome. I love that. That's so cool. Um, I wanted to ask before we wrap up, if anyone wants to learn more about the research that's being done at Awerco or about ACEs, the Adverse Childhood Experiences, um, or if you want to get involved in future research, is there any um, resources you want to give to families that you can direct them to? Sure. So. Um, the Awerko website is always a great place to go in terms of um, connecting with research studies that are currently recruiting or just finding out about what's going on at the Awerko Center okay. in terms of uh, you know studies that are happening already. Uh, the Awerko Center is relatively new, so our content is sort of in development. Yeah. Um, but there's a, a couple of other resources that people might want to check out. One is the Alberta Family Wellness Initiative. Okay. Um, which is uh, an Alberta-focused um, not-for-profit, and they've partnered with uh, government and Alberta Health to try to disseminate information about, um, including ACEs, but okay. uh, health of families. The other place is um, the Harvard, Harvard Center for the Developing Child. Okay. They've got a lot of really great resources there, and we can I'll put the links up on the podcast description Um, good yeah so I'll put all those links up if people need them Um, yeah I think that's that's good Um, well I don't want to take too much more of your time but thank you so much Jerry for spending time with us today and we're putting this podcast out just before Father's Day so it's it's a nod to fathers and partners everywhere um, who are doing the best they can to support Um, spouses and children so thank you so much Jerry for offering us your information and your research you're very welcome and uh, it's my pleasure happy Father's Day to all the Father's Day out there and and if I could just add one other small note Uh, although we didn't study uh, families who were single parent families or gay and lesbian families we really really think that these findings actually apply to those families as well the key component here is the close emotional relationship. It's not yeah. whether they're male or female. Right. Um, so, um, and you know, by extension, you could even think about someone who doesn't have um, a close sort of personal partner, but has a strong emotional personal relationship with a professional, like a nurse or right. somebody like that who is providing uh, care. Yeah. Um, you know. If the sort of essential elements of that close emotional relationship are present, yes. then I would expect that these findings apply yeah, in those yeah. situations as yeah, well. Yeah, I would agree. Thank you so much, Jerry. Yeah, you're yep. very welcome. Awesome, thank you. All right, I just want to say again, Thank you so much to uh, Dr. Jerry Giesberg from the Awerko Center. It was really awesome to interview him. This is my first interview ever. Um, I really just appreciated the, the positivity that can actually come out of some of this research that maybe initially seems um, 
um, negative or discouraging, but really I think what the take home message is from this research is that as fathers, as mothers, as partners, people who have spouses or anyone who really is involved in the life of a child, we have the power by the way we support each other and that child to actually positively influence the biology of that child. Um, and that's quite amazing. And by, the, by influencing that, we influence the way that genes get expressed um, in the environment and for better or for worse. And so really there is choice there. There's options to say, what can I do to be a more supportive spouse or a more supportive mother or a more supportive brother or sister or friend? Um, what kind of things do I have to do uh, to make sure I take care of myself so that I can be available to be supportive? And I think it's also a good message to um, parents out there who are raising children who have ADHD. I think, you know, I mentioned this when I was talking, we were talking to Jerry, that um, I always strongly encourage parents to make sure that they are doing what they need to do to take care of themselves, um, you know, as far as sleep and diet and exercise, but even things like finding social support whether that's connecting with friends or family members, um, taking active steps to, do, to make that connection, whether um, we need to seek out more professional help, therapy, family therapy, those kinds of things. So crucial in looking at how do we actually treat ADHD. There's a lot of things that we talk about. You know, we talk about the four pillars, learning about ADHD, um, lifestyle, so the diet, the exercise, the sleep. We talk about strategies and we talk about medication, but I think the other bit is to take a step back and say, um, how are we as the adults in this child's life, how are we taking care of ourselves to then make sure that we're being um, as supportive as we can be and as positive an influence as we can be? Um, because now we know, you know, from Jerry's research and many others that there's actually biological effects um, on the way that we interact with each other. So just really, uh, you know, thanks again to Jerry for that amazing interview. And we're really looking forward to doing a lot more of these types of podcasts where we interview local researchers and other clinicians in the Calgary area. So we're going to actually take a bit of a break over the summer here. And I encourage you to, while we're on break, to maybe go back and listen to some older episodes that you haven't heard or maybe some ones you haven't listened to in a long time. You might go, oh, yeah, that one and uh, get some new strategies that maybe you forgot about or ones you haven't thought about yet or just some new information about ADHD. So I encourage you to go back and re-listen to some things. We're going to be back in the fall. Uh, my hope is to be able to continue with the podcast and be able to bring current research um, to families who are looking for that. So information not only about ADHD, but things like parenting and child development, um, health-related issues, those kinds of things. So we're really excited for that. So be patient and we'll be back in a couple months. And uh, if you want more information and just to keep an eye on what we're doing here as we plan for those upcoming podcasts, check out ADHDfamilies.ca as well as canlearnsociety.ca. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you in a couple months. Have a great summer. Thanks for listening to Inside ADHD, the official podcast for ADHDfamilies.ca. For more information about ADHD and how to help your child, visit ADHDfamilies.ca, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or your favorite podcast player. If you have benefited from the Inside ADHD podcast, please help spread the word to others by posting a review in iTunes. 
If you have a specific ADHD topic that you would like to hear about on our podcast, please send your suggestions to ADHDfamilies at canlearnsociety.ca.